You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. is an ethnic leader and a grad student at the Department of Central Eurasian Studies, as well as an outreach staff member at the Center for the Study of the Middle East at Indiana University in Bloomington. He is also the director of cultural affairs for um, the Campaign for Uyghurs, an NGO in Washington, D.C. His main interests lie in language policy in Xinjiang, Turkic languages, language intelligence, and the Uyghur diaspora. In addition to being ex- extensively involved in his own academic field, Ms. Mr. Aksu has also been an active member of the Uyghur Academy since 2009. He organized and hosted one of the first panels in the U- in, at a UNOS, U.S. university on mass incarceration, China's radical and dangerous policies in Xinjiang, along with the well-attended Uyghur Cultural Night in October 2018 at in- Indiana University. Um, Relevant to us, he taught elementary Uyghur here last summer at SESI and has furthermore served as a Uyghur language developer at the Center for Languages of the Central Asian Region at Indiana University. Today, Mr. Aksu will discuss the main policies that the Chinese government is enforcing in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and will explore these transforming policies by providing both quantitative and qualitative examples of labor transfer, language change, and the re-education camps. So please join me in welcoming Mustafa Aksu. It's really good to be back and to see some familiar faces. Uh, maybe some of you have heard about what's going on now in East Turkestan or Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uh, so today I will talk about this Chinese policies of transforming Uyghurs. I know it's a really big topic, because it, um, labor transfer could be you know, whole day, <laughs> language policy and re-education camp, uh, which is really depressing. Um, so today, actually, I will focus more on labor transfer part and re-education, because last year in my presentation, I talked about the bilingual education and how the Uyghur language is removed from education system. Okay, so what will be discussed today? <coughs> uh, First, I will talk about what is the labor transfer policy like in East Turkestan and what type of migration is it. And then language policy and later re-education camps. So before, oh, sorry, <laughs> it's here. I have two laptops here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, this is the East Turkestan, which is located in the northwestern part of China. It's also called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And this is the overall map of Xinjiang. And if you look at the map, most of the Uyghurs located in southern, or like six cities, and the Aksu Prefecture, and Kuzulsu, Kashgar, and Potan. Um, uh, our region is also one of the largest natural gas cotton and coal producing region. And that's why I just put it, um, represent the uh, East Turkestan. Okay, so, so what is the population of 
Uyghurs. According to the statistical yearbook of Xinjiang in 2016, the total population of Uyghurs is around 11 million. However, the Uyghur Academy, which headquarters located in Istanbul, uh, said that the total number of Uyghur people in Xinjiang is nearly 19 million. Uh, this is just based on their own research, mm, like secret research in the region between 2004 to 2009. And some Uyghur nationals actually claim sometimes that maybe there are more than 30 million people Uyghurs all around the world, but it's really hard to predict, you know, because there's no evidence for that. So, and we also have Uyghur diaspora. Uh, most of them are living in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and other Central Asian regions, and Turkey as well. And some of us live in Northern America, Australia, and the Middle East. This is like estimated number. So, labor transfer. How is it, like nowadays the labor transfer is very different from the previous one. Actually, labor transfer is not something new in China now. And especially in Uyghur's case, Uyghur's labor transfer migration to Chinese cities is not new phenomenon. So upon the establishment of the People's Republic of China, the Uyghur cadres moved to the capital Beijing and worked in different government offices. And during Deng Xiaoping's era, Deng Xiaoping is the one of the former of CCP, uh, which led China to prosper uh, during like the 80s. So hundreds of Uyghurs came to big cities like such as Beijing and Guangzhou and Shanghai to do business. And most of them like opened their restaurants and sold like traditional Uyghur items. Uh, so, but now the labor transfer here I'm talking about now this is very different. The previous ones, if you say it's you know, it's based on voluntary willingness, but these ones are not really. So that's my argument that I would say the labor transfer nowadays is forced migration, and the labor transfers are forced. And according um, labor transfer here, I'm also talking about the laborers, Uyghur laborers in East Turkestan who are moved to Chinese cities. And there's like labor transfer among the region, like in Xinjiang, like from the southern part to northern, or even among the southern prefectures, like because Aksu is the agricultural district of the region, so people from Khotan and Kashgar they come to work. And that's not I'm I'm not talking about that. Here when I talk about labor transfer, it is about the Uyghur uh, workers working in Chinese factories. Um, so the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region Development and Reform Commission's official website just uh, um, mentioned that more than, actually nearly three million people were transferred as surplus laborers last year. So actually the term surplus labor is really tricky. In Chinese, uh, um, in big context, it is that people who are underemployed or have no job. But in Uyghur's case, it's not only about that. Like most of the Uyghurs who are transferred to the Chinese cities, actually they have a job, they are farmers, they have land to work. So um, the surplus labor, it, it is a, like a big name for that, but just it's not that what you think. 
And the government office of propaganda states that this policy is like benefiting rural Uyghurs and migrant workers on large scale. However, is it really the case? I don't think so. Because migration of Uyghurs or labor transfer is a forced migration and as part of transforming policies, or it also could be viewed as labor conscription, which was like uh, in Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Union time, in 1950s. Um, I'm saying this uh, forced migration, but forced migration is a general term that refers to the movements of refugees and internal displaced people. Um, maybe you will ask, uh, Uyghurs, how come Uyghurs can be like IDP, like internal displaced people? But one of the term here, like development projects, and lots of Uyghur farmers were expelled from their own land because of the Chinese uh, companies or settled down there and opening new factories. So I would say that this is part of the IDP is part of the forced migration. So in this case, Uyghur labor transfer is also forced migration. Um, and one of the characteristics of forced migration is, uh, you know, most people don't willingly leave their home environment even under life-threatening pressure. So I would argue that this is a forced labor transfer. And many research gaps remain in the terms of broader phenomena in China. Um, there is likely to be significant displacement associated with the development projects in Xinjiang. But however, no data is available on the triggered either by political or ethnic violence as well as disasters. But some of the uh, qualitative research was conducted in the previous years proved that actually it is. Um, I'm skipping this part because these are the previous studies on Uyghur labor transfer to inner China. Uh, most of the paper or articles written about the Uyghur labor transfer are favoring the CCP, Chinese Communist Party's policy that how good it is and how beneficial is it to the Uyghur people. And there's one person, called Mijit, um, one scholar, sorry, Mijit Mehmet argues that the negative consequences and uh, positive consequences of labor transfer from Xinjiang to inland China, um, you know, and he points out that there's a huge economic gap between Xinjiang and inland regions and there are not enough job positions in labor market in Xinjiang. Uh, and uh, he was also critical about the policies of government, how they are moving or forcing the Uyghurs uh, to inner China. So there's only uh, another question, like if there are not enough job positions in labor market in China, why the CCP is moving hundreds, millions of the Chinese laborers to the region, right? So. Um, so it's like when I was doing a lot of research on this issue, like it was very hard to find like articles uh, which was really critical. But most of the articles here, like I found is favoring it. So what I did is like I researched on the official website, the uh, order of uh, state councils like if you look at the State Council of the People's Republic of China issued number 130 order. Like in China, normally if they issue a paper, there are always numbers. So it was issued in 2008. Um, as you can see, the migrant workers and new form of labor force that took shape during the process of reform 
and often industrially and for urbanization. And it's important to develop labor economy and strengthen coordination between the labor output area and labor input district. So in order, um, so in one year later, the government of Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region issued number 32 order. So it orders all prefectures, cities, and country government, company government should high pay attention to the document and take effective measures to enforce the order and also combine it with the Communist Party Committee of Xinjiang Autonomous Region's number four order. So the number four order of the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is telling that local authorities should help in their Chinese cities to meet their labor need. And they should actively explore employment channels for the Uyghur labor workers. And the employment training for surplus, uh, surplus laborers should be carried out in overall Xinjiang, especially in the four main Uyghur populated areas. And there's one more policy, is like Yihu Yiren, one family, one person policy, that each family should have at least one surplus laborer in the rural areas. And then later, at the beginning, it was very hard to enforce these policies. A lot of chaos happened, and people were not willing to move. Then, so the Department of Finance launched a new incentive program. Yeah, let's see. Like, if you move to inner China, each person's incentive is raised between 60 yuan to 300 yuan, probably $18 to 50, like $49, and it's just one, like it's done by months or by days, just one time. And at the same time, if the rural married couples move together and settle down in inner China, each couple is given 1,000 yuan. It is about like $170 at the moment. And the regional government also emphasized that they don't offer or provide incentives if the total number of transferred laborers are below 2,000 people for each county. Apparently, there's a quota that should be satisfied. How do they define inner China? When I say inner China, I'm talking about the uh, uh, area like from Gansu province to the eastern China. For us, it's like, in Chinese, we call it Nadi, so it, the English translation is like Inner China. So if I say Inner China, just imagine like it's not Tibet or Xinjiang, uh, but the other provinces. Uh, so the, as I said, the labor transfer is forced, and there are like evidences from the qualitative interviews and quantitative research. Here, I just only put some of them. Like for in like in Mijit Mamet's fieldwork research, he conducted in Paisawat County. Actually, the county is the first county that the CCP, like and the regional government, uh, made this uh, labor transfer experiment. So, the in order to um, to uh, to favor this policy. A Pezawan County organized government cadres and school teachers to force Uyghur laborers to move into the China in order to accomplish the quota. And village cadres went into the Uyghur household and pressured families to send their to send their daughters in the, to in the China as migrant workers. Here, like we have to notice that daughters, 
because at the first start, <coughs> at the beginning, um, if you're going to be like transferred to uh, Chinese cities, only like females have this uh, chances. I mean, like they are, uh, the males are exempted. And later, of course, like they encourage the couples and other male uh, workers. But at the beginning, it was uh, just targeting the female Uyghur workers. And also, village cadres forced and, uh, and find a punch Uyghur parents for not being cooperated uh, with the government. And also, they forcefully took away the female workers from their house. So um, this data, like, uh, like if you are interested in learning more, I have the uh, um, the original data that I can share later. Uh, but here I'm just putting like bullet points. So also my field experience in garment factories in Tianjin. So I was there, and I spoke to some of the female workers between the age of 13 to 17, and most of them are at school age. They were sent there because the uh, local counties couldn't, you know, fulfill the quota. So they forced the students and other female uh, workers to go there. And the youngest one was 13. Yeah. And all of them were forced to move out, and none of them wanted to come there. And there were like more than 50 of them, and their Mandarin schools were really poor. And some of them were abused by other like factory members, like Chinese factory members, and sexually harassed. Um, when I was there, three of them was able to escape from the factory. Um, the one girl from Yinsar County, and she, she was trying to climb the wall of the factory, and she, she broke her bones, and she, she, now she's crippled. And two of them were able to escape, and they hide themselves in uh, one of the Uyghur restaurants in Tianjin. So this kind of like tragic stories are very common. So here, that's why I'm here. When I talk about labor transfers, I say it's forced migration, and most of the scholars in this field give the criteria of what is like forced migration. If you look at the also like United Nations website, this all the evidences fulfill the criteria. So I would argue that this is forced migration, and the labor transfer is like forced. So this is the first policy of the Chinese government, which is enforcing now. And last week I was uh, again reading the Xinjiang government's website. They are targeting more people in the coming years. And the total population of like Uyghurs is 11 million. I don't know how many people will be left in Xinjiang. So yeah, sec and. Next, uh, let's talk about language policy a little bit. I won't talk too much about this because last year I talked a little bit and because of the time matter as well. Uh, I myself divided this um, period like from 1980 to 1990 and then 2000 and the year 2000 and according to this. Uh, before 1980, um, because it was like it's very it was it's very hard for me to get data, and uh, so that's why I started from 1980s. 1980s, uh, it's one of the golden time of the Uyghurs actually because of the um, CCP uh, uh, chairman uh, Hu Yaobang. He was like very progressive communist, and he gave like full autonomy to the Uyghurs 
at that time. So they introduced, uh, like before 1980s, Uyghurs were using a Latin alphabet. So in 1980s, suddenly they, like, they changed the alphabet into Perso-Arabic, and many people become illiterate. Um, but there were like separate schools, so they separated the Han Chinese schools from Uyghur schools. Uh, so like bilingual education was, the, the concept was still there, but it was not fully implemented because of lack of the teachers. Then 1990 and to 2000, during Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao's period, and they, they are the president of China. So the bilingual education was fully introduced to the schools and implemented. But there were still like Uyghur schools, Han Chinese schools, and bilingual schools. But the year 2000, Uyghur language was removed from the university education, but was still used in high school, uh, middle school, and elementary schools. And also the year 2000, Xinjiang class was introduced. It is like each year the government chose one of the like, 1,000 brightest students from the area, and they should come from ethnic, like Turkic ethnic groups like Uyghur, Kazakh, Karagaz, Uzbek, Tatar, Tajik, and other ethnic groups. Um, and these students actually graduate from Uyghur schools, and I'm one of them. Uh, so that later the education, the language of education suddenly changed to Chinese, and we were educated in Chinese. It was challenging. And so between 2000 and 2009, uh, Uyghur was still used in public places, at schools, but not at university, of course. Uh, but the schools start, like Han Chinese schools and Uyghur schools start to cooperate. Like it's like one school that has different uh, language instruction. And after 2009 to 2017, I'm just putting 2019 because the year 2019, um, 2009 is the uh, crucial year because there was like uprising and there was ethnic clash between Han Chinese and the Uyghurs. So again, the regional government and the central government of China start to change the language policy, then they feel that Chinese Mandarin education is really necessary for Uyghurs if they want to be part of this Chinese culture. And then 2009 to 2017, it was another period. Uh, Uyghurs were still implemented at schools, uh, but you know, but bilingual education was increased, and some of the courses, like more courses were taught in Chinese, Mandarin, Mandarin Chinese than Uyghurs. Maybe like you were able to learn Uyghur uh, maybe three hours per week, four hours per week. And if you are still interested, I, can, I have this data and I can offer it. And 2017 to now, why 2017 there was a big change? So this year, so the bilingual education changed to monolingual education. It's one of the government's attempts. And according to the China, uh, Xinjiang Education Department, there were like more than two million minority students. When we say minority, they are like Uyghurs, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, again, like other Turkic minorities, and also uh, uh, Shibo and other Mongols. And the total number of Uyghur preschool students and kindergarten pupils were, you know, 659,000. And it took up 99% of kindergarten students overall. So, since 2017, August, uh, the Uyghur language has banned from school. <laughs> um, this is just for your reference. The uh, Uyghur kids are dressed in Chinese um, 
dresses mm -hmm. and singing in Chinese. <coughs> and there's a document that Xinjiang So official document requires in, in, instruction of Mandarin and banning Uyghur language on all levels of education. Yeah. Here like they are saying that from September 2017, high schools and other schools should use Mandarin as a medium of instruction. But they also mentioned that in the southern prefectures, the Uyghur populated area, they can start it a little bit later. But yeah, it is on the paper, but it was not implemented. Actually, if you look at this education department of Hotan district, it's one of the biggest Uyghur populated area. They issued five point directive outlawing the use of Uyghur language at schools in favor of Mandarin. Yeah, mm, I'm sure some of you can read Chinese here. Um, I don't have to translate them all, but uh, I assume you know. But uh, so it's said that the, the one of the rule is to prohibit the usage of Uyghur in education system, public activities, and daily management work. And it also mentioned that Mandarin Chinese must be fully implemented for three years of preschool. <laughs> it means from three years old to six years old. And enforced from the first years of elementary and middle school. That means no more Uyghur education. Okay, so um, I will stop there. And now I move to the re-education camps. Sorry, because the time is really limited. It's hard to cover like three uh, subjects at the same time and since this is a good opportunity to talk about my people <laughs> so I want to make full of all the chances so re-education camps and maybe some of you have heard about what's going on there's a lot of reports from CNN BBC and other really reliable resources right and he this person is a main planner and of course President Xi Jinping is not excluded so he was appointed as the uh, uh, party chief or um, the highest official of Xinjiang in 2016. On his third day, he already hosted the video conferences and emphasized stability is the most important factor for the development for East Turkestan, Xinjiang. So they recruited tens of thousands of security personnel and turned the region into police state. That's how they started. And then they really implemented the policy, like re-education thing, in 2017. I should say from April 2017. Uh, and they advertised a lot of security-related positions. Um, also, police stations were expected to be built. But a friend of mine, an American, I don't want to disclose his, her name, she was there and she witnessed Every hundred meter in Aksu and Kashgar, there was like police station, which is called convenience station for the ethnic groups. So later, just the, the passport of the Uyghurs and Kazakhs and Kurds were confiscated, no out, no in. So most of the Uyghur people now in diaspora, they are not able to contact their families. It's like, uh, for me, it's been almost two years. The last time I contacted them was May 2017, and yesterday I was lucky enough to hear, hear about uh, what's going, what happens to my family, and I learned that they are safe, at least. 
and the DNA collected from the Uyghurs and surveillance cameras, checkpoints everywhere. And the most disturbing thing is historical cultural Uyghur buildings were demolished. And uh, BBC and CNN had recent news and they used a satellite image and they found it out. And the Uyghur economy was completely destroyed. Uh, in the past, uh, Uyghurs are given the freedom uh, to have their own companies and they were really successful. Um, but it's most of them like light industry, like food industry, but now most of them are closed or given to other Chinese factories. So in 2016, um, there were like 75 signs of religious extremism was released. So they used this as a guidance, start to put the people in so-called re-education camps. For example, if you don't smoke or you don't drink, you might be seen as like a pre-criminal. <laughs> and one of the uh, uh, government official scolded his son for drinking too much alcohol and second day he was sent to re-education camp. This is a true story. And local authority also put those who have traveled outside of China, family members of students who study in Egypt and Turkey, directly were taken to the camps. And then later they started those who studied in the United States, uh, in Australia and other in Middle East countries. Um, I can give testimony here, like at least 20 friends of mine disappeared upon their return. They were called back and to Xinjiang to like cancel their hukou, uh, which is um, like residency, and then we didn't hear from them anymore. Um, those who traveled up outside of China were also put into the camps. Some, like there are several types of camps. Um, they, the camps actually were divided into six groups. The most serious criminals were put into group six, and the last one was put into group, group one. So if you notice um, what you see on the news on BBC, I mean, the detainees uh, who are now being picked for foreign observers, foreign journalists, all of them come from group one. So they all went, uh, have gone through total physical and mental destruction and have become to say yes to everything so they can keep themselves alive. <coughs> and uh, police regularly check the Uyghur households and detain the suspects as well. If, and there's a form um, that, is, that decides if you are safe ethnic group or not. So I didn't put it here. Um, so if you have a passport, like the total score is 100. If you have a passport, minus 10. If you have relatives outside of China, minus 10. If you have traveled to one of the 17 dangerous countries listed on the Chinese, like Turkey and other countries, minus 10. And so if you score below 60, then you are considered an extremist or a dangerous person, and they will put you in concentration camp. And more than 300 intellectuals, poets, artists, actors, football players, and well-known figure topics are detained, and we don't know where they are. We have really like famous scholars who used to come here, 
uh, who used to study, uh, who used to be a business scholar in Indiana University at Harvard, Uni Harvard University, and one of the very well-known one is um, uh, she was detained in 2017, and we don't know where she is now. So, uh, at the beginning, the State Department said that up to one million Uyghurs were detained in those concentration camps. But now, a year later, they, they are saying one to three million. And most of the resources are saying three million. I don't know how they come up with this number, which is really frightening. But they, like, they counted the total number of concentration, concentration camp that they could find on satellite image. And like, and they counted it like a, it, each cell has this, like this much person. Then the total population of the detainees are like like one to three million. Um, and the recent report, and the um, one medical doctor from UK gave testimony that he also joined the organ harvesting of the Uyghurs. And I don't know. And if you have a chance, like this is the report from yesterday. It was on YouTube. I'm not going to play it, but I just <laughs> want to show that I would suggest that you would um, watch it after this talk. <laughs> yeah, it's about the inside Chinese thought, thought transformation camps. So it's really horrible. And these ones are the the they come from group one. So they might be able to go home sometimes, but limited hours. And um, what surprised me about this video, like, they were the same people like last year. And well, a lot of questions in my mind, but because of the time being, I'm not talking too much about that. But yeah. Uh, these are the images of uh, concentration camps. You can see really bright. And Peter Winter is like re doing a really good job. They have a lot of uh, journalists there. And some of them were detained, but they did a really good job uh, to um, take these pictures. So um, our, my resource or our sources about the camps come from Western Media requests, uh, reports witness from the camps and the region. And um, if you look at the this is a Kazakh man uh, who has a green card. And he finally, he was able to come out of China, come out to concentration camp under the Chinese, uh, the Kazakh government's help. And this is uh, one Uyghur girl. Uh, she was in concentration camp in 2017, a mother of triples, and one of them were died there. And she also gave testimony um, in Capitol Hills. Um, each of them got really like sad, horrible stories. And we also have a lot of uh, reports from Human Rights Watch and United Nations Human Rights Council report and US State Department and Congress China Commission report and RFA reports, Radio Free Asia. Uh, so yeah, it is all about what I want to talk about. So the last part I want to say, how can you help the Uyghurs and other Turkish people? Um, here, I, um, if you have friends, or like, if you are a believer, like church members, synagogue members, or 
Catholic church members or mosque members, please tell them what's going on there and ask them to contact their representatives and let them know that there's like Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act 2019. So we still need people to sign and make it effective soon. Um, and also, if you have Uyghur friends, uh, just let them know that you care about them. And also, I really hope that after this lecture presentation, you can um, learn more about the Uyghurs and try to try your best if you could help and volunteer for the projects and others. Yeah. Thank you. Rahmet.